This podcast is recorded in front of a live studio audience at Legend Comics in Omaha, Nebraska. You're listening to the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast with Joe and Matt. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast. We have a very special guest reviewer this week. But we're not going to tell you who it is yet. It's a surprise. My name is Matt Baum, and when I'm not picking fights with Mike Huckabee on Twitter, <laughs> I'm writing about and appraising comics for WordPoint.com. And I am Joe Patrick, manager of Legend Comics in Omaha, Nebraska, and... What? <laughs> Read it. Read it, monkey. And when I'm not wearing grease paint and letting bulls chase me around the rodeo... I'm the artist and co-creator of Good Plus Online. He's a rodeo clown. Get it? <laughs> this week you'll hear reviews of Wolf Number 1 and the all-ages graphic novel Takio. We'll look ahead to some of next week's comics, and Ask a Nerd is back, and this time it's personal. But oh, before snap. we humiliate Joe Patrick in front of God and everybody, let's talk about this week's big news. An image of Hugo weaving as the Red Skull hit the internet this week, and... Cap nerds everywhere went insane, leaping through the air and throwing their mighty shields. Matt, did the Red Skull pick make the wings on your head stand at attention? It did, and I'll tell you why. Not just because he looks awesome. And he does look awesome. Pretty much how I pictured him, because you can't do like a floating red skull face. I like that the skin is sort of like tucked around him, and it looks really tight and scary. Yeah. He doesn't actually look like a... He looks infected. Skull, yeah. (laughs) It looks like the skin on his face has just been... Which is good, and they've kind of been drawing him like that for a little while now, and we've become comfortable with it, but I think my favorite thing is that he's holding a cosmic cube. I don't know if he was holding a cosmic cube in that photo. Well, we've seen pictures of him holding a cosmic cube. But I've seen, like, pre-skull Hugo Weaving holding the cosmic cube. Uh, I was pretty psyched to see the Hydra belt buckle. Yes. He looks scary. This looks very nerdy, very scary, very evil, and I think it would have been really easy for them to take a cartoony route on this one and yes. totally butcher the Red Skull. No, this looks great. Uh, it looks very accurate, and I'm very pleased. In other news, DC's Flashpoint event, starring everyone's favorite Flash, looks to be a world-altering, age of apocalyptian affair. Ooh, for lack of a better term. This week, eight of the 14 Flashpoint miniseries have had their skirts lifted and their creative teams exposed. Gross! Now, instead of thoughtful discussion that might bring something to the discourse, we're going to take turns and go title by title with instant knee-jerk reactions to said creative teams. Just like the internet demands! Starting with me. Flashpoint, Legion of Doom, covers by Mikel Sepulveda, written by Adam Glass, art by Rodney Buccemi, and Jose Marzan. The tagline for this one is, Whatever happened to the world's greatest supervillains? Joe! Who? Yeah, I don't recognize any of these names. Sepulveda. Sepulveda. He drew the Thanos Imperative for Marvel. He's very good. Okay. He's the only name I... Well, Jose Marzan is a veteran inker, but other than that, I don't know any of these people. Your turn. Flashpoint, Emperor Aquaman, covers by Adrian Sayef and Vicente Cifuentes. Writer, Tony Bedard, art by Sayef and Cifuentes. Tagline, he will drown the world, dot, dot, dot. Then rule it. So it looks like we're setting up like mean Submariner Aquaman in DC Flashpoint universe. I, I'm sensing a very strong. I don't know if uh, I care. Nautical pirate theme to Flashpoint. There does so seem far. to be a lot of nautical pirate <laughs> stuff going on. Uh, you know, sorry to our friend Patrick, but I don't know if I care. I I'll read I, it. It's Tony Bedard, and we promised that we're going to read it. But anyway, moving on. Flashpoint. World of Flashpoint. Ugh. 
from the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> Covers by Shane Davis, written by Rex Ogle, art by Paolo Sequiria. Uh, every week we try to butcher someone's name. Good Sorry, work. Paolo. Tagline, discover the world of Flashpoint. <laughs> uh, I really like Paolo Sequiria. I like him too. Uh, I don't know who Rex Ogle is. Shane Davis. Or, um, pardon me, Rex Ogle. Who is this guy? What do you write? I don't know. Me either. I didn't do any research. <laughs> well, I, I feel like because these are knee-jerk reactions. Yes, these are knee-jerk reactions, folks. Your turn. Uh, Flashpoint: Hal Jordan covers by Rags Morales, writer Adam Schlagman, art Ben Oliver. Tagline: He never got the ring. And my tagline would be: Then I don't care. Uh, you know, I'm into a book about Hal Jordan. I like Ben Oliver. He's done some work for Marvel. Adam Schlagman, I believe, is an editor at DC. And what's with all these editors writing these? I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know. And Green Lantern without a ring? I don't know that I care. Uh, I will tell you what I have. Uh, you know what? I'll save it for the next one. Go. Flashpoint. Dead Men and the Flying Graysons. Covers by Cliff Chang, who I love. Yes. Written by J.T. Kroll. Art by Mikkel Janin. And the tagline for this one, for their last performance, an escape act. Uh, something that I've thought about almost every one of these series is that I wish the people doing the covers were doing the actual art. I'm right there with you. Um, Absolutely. Why isn't Rags Morales drawing this Hal Jordan comic? Why isn't Cliff Chang drawing this Dead Man comic? Yes. It, the cover to the Dead Man comic is awesome. By the way, we it can add like circuses. Circus poster. Yeah, we can add circuses to the nautical pirate theme. Well, yeah. For Flashpoint. Um, all right, moving on. Flashpoint, Batman, Night of Vengeance, covers by Dave Johnson. Written by Brian Azzarello with art by Eduardo Rizzo. Tagline, The Night of Vengeance. Okay. Um, you can't see the cover image of this. We'll put it up on our, our Facebook page. But it's Batman rolling some dice. And there's rumors about Batman running a casino. Yeah. And I, you know what? I I like Brian Azzarello. I love Eduardo Rizzo. And I loved 100 Bullets. You know what I don't want him writing? Batman. <laughs> I hate it when they write Batman. <laughs> It's not – I mean I understand this is supposed to be a different world and everything, but wow. Do we need Batman running He's a casino? He's the casino boss, yeah. I, Moving on. Flashpoint. I, Citizen Cold. Covers an art by Scott Collins. Written by Scott Collins. Tagline. He loves someone he shouldn't, which makes me instantly go, gay? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> Captain Cold uh, is my favorite rogue, Flash Rogue. Scott Collins wrote the uh, Solomon Grundy series, so he's got a few titles under his belt as a writer. There's a whole lot of Scott Collins going on here. I still like Scott Collins. And as I recall, Solomon Grundy was Scott Collins' Jeff Johns, like Slash, right? Nope. No? No. Are you sure? Yes. We're going to check that one. Scott Scott Collins was the sole writer on Solomon Grundy. Who does he love? Uh, Maybe he loves Solomon Grundy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe he does. Flashpoint, Deathstroke and the Curse of the Ravager. Uh, covers by Joe Bennett and John Dell, writer Jimmy Palmiotti, art Joe Bennett and John Dell. Tagline: He will stop at nothing to find his lost treasure. See, he's got an eye patch like a pirate. This is back to the pirate stuff. The curse of the Ravager, and he has a sword like a pirate, and he's looking for a treasure like I'm, a pirate. I'm pretty sure that the cover has a guy with a hook hand on it. Uh, yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, "No, don't kill me, Deathstroke." I, I'm not excited by what i've seen at all i'm not excited by the creative teams i'm not excited by the cover images or the titles um i should say okay i should say when all is said and done joe and i will be reviewing the whole of flashpoint on another very special episode of the two-headed nerd comic cast but for now we want to know what you guys think obviously 
Those are our knee-jerk reactions. Go to our Facebook page where the question of the week is, Flashpoint, are you all in? Are you hedging your bets on this one and only reading some of it? Or did you fold the second you heard the words 14 different miniseries? I'm all in. We have to. It's our job. (laughs) All right. It's time once again for reviews. We're talking about a couple of comics that came out this past Wednesday, March 2nd. Matt? What did you read for us this week? This week I picked up Wolf number one. Wolf. Wolf number one from Arden, which is not Atlas, but it's part of the Atlas relaunch. It says Atlas right there. Yeah, I know, but it's it's just shipped by Arden as their publisher. I don't get it either. I think they wanted to make it confusing. Okay. It's written by Steve Niles, art by Nat Jones, and color by Mai. M-A-I. Mai. Mai. There you go. This is the second title in the Atlas relaunch. I thought it was the first, but the Grim Ghost Zero quietly hit the stands last year. Now, let's not confuse the Atlas that's being relaunched here with the Atlas comics of the 1950s. That was the predecessor to Marvel. This is, Atlas is commonly referred to as Atlas Seaboard. Seaboard was the parent company of the publisher. They were created by Martin Goodman, who was one of the Marvel founders in 1974. publisher was around for a whole year before it went broke. Right, and this is like uh, Martin Goodman's grandson bringing these. I didn't know that. So there's his name right there. Oh, Jason Goodman. Look at that. He's the guy. Keep it in the family. Um, Atlas was notable because they were the first comic publisher to push the idea of creator rights. At the time, Atlas was paying the highest rates in the business. They were also returning artwork to artists and giving creator rights to artists and writers that created original characters. This attracted like several big names like Neil Adams, Steve Ditko, Howard Chaikin, Russ Heath, John Severin, Alex Toth, and Wally Wood. The benefits they received from Atlas would go on to lead to changes in the industry that would ultimately become, like, creative rights and royalties, similar to what's paid to authors and musicians. So the problem lied in the fact that you had a bunch of artists trying to write comics, and uh, they sucked. <laughs> sort of like Image in the early <laughs> 90s. It was the, the 1970s <laughs> the, equivalent of Image yes, Comics. Yes, they were the first Image, basically. Atlas Comics looked great, but uh, they... Read like uninspired derivative crap, and that is a quote <laughs> that I'm giving. Wow. Yes. Which leads me to Wolf number one. The original Wolf <laughs> was created by Larry Hama way back in 1975. Speaking of uninspired derivative crap. <laughs> Wolf the Barbarian is essentially a watered-down Conan the Barbarian, who had a very successful title that was being published at the same time. Wolf was orphaned at a young age when his king and queen mother were killed by trolls in the service of an evil sorcerer. He then devotes his life to revenge and became a sword-wielding tough guy. It should be stated for the record that none of that information is conveyed in the comic. (laughs) I'm getting there. Okay. So we flash forward 35 years and Steve Niles has breathed new life into the forgotten Conan ripoff with the help of artist Nat Jones, who could serve as Rob Zombie's body double should Zombie ever need to distract assassins. (laughs) He looks exactly (laughs) like him. Uh, Judging by the cover, you would think this is a story of a time-displaced barbarian, and I'm sure that that story is coming, but it doesn't happen here. In fact, not much happens here at all. Niles just doesn't give us much to glom onto with Wolf. After reading the comic, I honestly couldn't tell you anything about the character, other than he rides a horse, doesn't talk much, and seems to know the villain, Sanjon, who I'm guessing is the sorcerer that killed his parents. Now, that history I gave you came from internet research, not from this issue, because none of that is there. I'd like to say that... I may have just given you a spoiler, but like I said, there's nothing in this comic. Spoiler alert. That would supply there's you. There's no story. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing that would supply you with that info. 
Almost nothing happens in Wolf Number One. We see an unexplained meteor shower pounding an unnamed area. A sorcerer puts on a scary hockey mask, kills some of his followers, and then Wolf messes him up a little bit. Only for the sorcerer to jump through an unnamed, unexplained portal into what appears to be modern-day New York. And when Wolf tries to follow him, he ends up pulling Officer Lomax through to the other side, who will be featured in the next issue. In the end, it says in big, bold letters, next month, Lomax! He's got his own logo. (laughs) My question is, why do I care? Who are these characters? You know, that says to me that that Lomax was... Another if, old if Lomax character. was an old character, he I don't think he had a title because I researched this. I looked at the old Atlas titles. Yeah, but maybe he was like a supporting was character. Was not Lomax. Maybe he yeah. was, to be fair. But back to what I was saying. Why do I care? Who are these characters? Where are they? There just isn't anything here to make me want to read a second issue. I'm not saying that there's some rich wolf continuity to draw on that Niall skipped over. I'm sure the old stuff sucked or wolf would be better known today. But give us something. I think Wolf had two lines in 22 pages, neither of which revealed anything about his character or demeanor or what he had for lunch. Just nothing. When you have a character like Wolverine or Conan or the Lone Ranger, you can start a story by leaping straight into the action. These are long-established characters, and we don't need to be reminded who they are or where they're from. We don't, have, we don't need to see a radioactive spider bite you know, Peter Parker at the beginning of every Spider-Man comic. That said, Wolf the Barbarian is far from iconic, and after reading my first 22-page Wolf story, I know more about Lomax, the stereotypical cop, <laughs> in the end of the comic than I do about the main character. I, I can't even say the story was bad because almost nothing happened. And what- I'll say it. The story was bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Nat Jones has done a lot of work for IDW and Image, and the bulk of it has been sword and sorcery or horror stuff. Both of which he's good at. He fits right in in the spawny type area. He's just not for me. Jones has this really, really detailed, thin-lined style that just doesn't do anything for me. He reminds me of Ron Garney's work, specifically on the new latest Wolverine Weapon X. I love Ron Garney. I do too, but without Garney's depth, motion, or point of view. You know what I mean? Like, Garney can take a style like this and make it interesting. I feel like Nat Jones is posing over and over and over again. It, it's just, it's almost like he gets lost in his own detail and he forgets to give us any motion. And his style is just way too posed for me. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, competent. Yeah. And, but like you said, there's nothing really special about it. This comic did not draw me in at all. And I'll admit, sword and sorcery is not my preferred genre. It's not my favorite. But it can be done well. Yeah, yeah. Anything can be done well. Exactly. But, you know, I was willing to give it a try, and if it was good, I'd say so, but there was nothing here for me. This feels like Steve Niles wrote this script in five minutes. Yes, it absolutely does. There's just nothing here. Uh, i got to give props to Nat Jones for fleshing it out. Yeah, and, you know, Steve Niles is a writer that I find very hit and miss. Uh, I really loved the Mystery Society book that. he just put out. I heard it was, it great. was very good. Gotta read that. Uh, but this, I agree. It just, it seems like he just kind of cranked it out in an afternoon, and there is nothing here. As a first issue of what is, I assume, an ongoing series, it is a, it does a poor job. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing to draw me back. Yeah. I'm saying if you have some fond memories of Larry Hama's Wolf, which I doubt you do, but then maybe this is a skim it. Otherwise, I'm saying this is a full-on leave it book. Likewise, leave it. Sorry, Atlas. Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? 
Conan the Librarian. So that's a double leave it for Wolf Number One from Atlas Arden, whatever. Joe, what did you decide to read this week? <laughs> uh, I kind of went in a different direction than I normally do. I am reviewing a graphic novel, not a single issue. This week saw the release of Takio Volume One uh, from Marvel's Icon imprint by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Avon Oming. Fair warning. I stole this synopsis from the back of the book. I just want it I no, want it on the record. Taki and Olivia are two sisters in a multiracial adoptive family and they drive each other insane. Their overprotective mother makes them walk to school together, eat lunch together and play together. They can't get away from each other. But when a once in a lifetime accident gives them real life superpowers, the two sisters become the world's first real life superheroes and it is awesome. I had zero interest in this book when I first heard about it. An all-ages book with characters named after Oming's wife and Bendis' daughter. Uh, I was like, oh, too cute. <laughs> it's like George Lucas's kids in yeah. the Star Wars prequel. Uh, I wrote it off as a vanity project and forgot all about it. But then I read a few pages in the preview at the back of this week's issue of Powers, and I did a complete 180. Uh, that the strength of those f- few pages that were previewed in Powers completely sold me. The writing is solid. It's typically strong Bendis dialogue. And the the voice of Olivia, the younger sister, is hilarious. Yeah, and he doesn't dumb it down either. Like a lot of writers when they write kids, they yeah. well, kids are just less intelligent people. Yeah. Right? You know, and so they, they write do... them like morons. <laughs> they, he does a good job of making Taki seem older, sound older, and Olivia sound young. Absolutely. Without making them sound like idiots. They sound like children. Uh, There is a scene where Olivia tries to pronounce the word telekinesis, and I'm not going to spoil for you, but I I laughed out loud. There is a real youthfulness to it that makes it easy to feel the influence of Bendis' daughter Olivia, his daughter in real life, who is listed as a co-creator of the Takio concept. The quote-unquote villain is a sympathetic character. You can sense his desperation as his life is, like, falling apart. And he is a bad person that makes bad choices, but he isn't, like, a mustache-twirling supervillain. No, he's a a fairly believable Yeah, he's a real guy guy in a bad situation situation. that goes down a bad path. Uh, He's a man with very real problems that reacts in a very real way, and that kept me invested in his story. And in fact, aside from the actual superheroics, the whole story is firmly rooted in the real world. The book wraps up with a scene with this kid in the cafeteria, and the words out of his mouth could have come straight out of 10-year-old Joe Patrick, because he has discovered that he now lives in a world where there are superheroes. Yeah. And it is blowing his tiny mind. (laughs) Oming's art is uh, so stylized that I feel like it's almost review-proof at this point. He's also – but it's different than what he does in Powers. Yeah. It's it's, a little cartoony. Well, every book that he does is a little different. Yeah. He is a master storyteller and he's great with facial expressions uh, considering his minimal style. You know, he doesn't have that many lines and he does a good job conveying – different types of uh, facial expressions, and I think that's really impressive. The art is dynamic, and everything pops from the page, and I give a lot of credit to Nick Filardi, the colorist. Yeah. Uh, everything is so bright and vibrant. It uh, feels like you're watching a cartoon. Yeah. 
There are a few moments, though, like in almost every Omen book, where I have no idea what's happening. It's clear that there's something happening, but the art doesn't really convey exactly what that something is. For example, at the point where Taki and Olivia get their powers, there's just like a, a lot of weird posing and energy, and it goes on for panels and panels. And I was like, what is happening here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, they were trying to get something across, and I think maybe they were, they were going for this mystery, sort of, so we're all kind of like, whoa, yeah. what is this? But, you know, I find something like that in almost every book that Oming draws, where he's drawing some sort of weird explosion or something, and I A can't... pile of guts. Yeah, I don't understand what's going on in these, like, three panels. But regardless, the artwork is beautiful. Oh, and also, there are a few... Uh, instances where Olivia, instead of looking like a little girl, looks like the alien from Mac and Me. Sort of. Uh, an ape. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, other than that, Oming's art is great as always. Uh, this is labeled as Volume 1, which implies to me that they hope to make more, and I hope that they do. Uh, it's a great book to hand to your younger daughter, sister, or niece. And speaking of that, I'm going to introduce our guest reviewer. I am an adult. I'm an old man. My point With of no view. No business reading kids' comics. Hey, my point of view shouldn't really matter. So we went out and got the kids' perspective. So joining us here, our special third chair, Lydia Baum, Matt's niece. Say word. Say hello to Lydia. Hello. <laughs> what did you think of this book? I actually liked it a lot. Did I just. You? Um, and I kind of disagree with you when you said that. Oh my! In when you face. said that um, <laughs> Oming's drawings don't really tell the story, because I kind of like how I would understand it, even if it didn't have words in it. If just that, what? I just kind of that's think the mark that the of a good storyteller. The, I think the drawings told the story just as much as the words did. Excellent. Uh, what did you think about the characters? Did you think they sounded like real kids? Well, yes, because in other comics that I've read, the kids just kind of sound like just weirdos. They don't sound like kids. <laughs> they sound more like little tiny grown-ups than oh. – um, so I think the writer pretty much just captured what a real kid would sound like. So, so for the record, how old are you? Nine. Nine years old. So you're not Matt's wife pretending to be a little girl. No. You are an authentic nine-year-old. Yes. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to read more about Takio? Oh, I would. I really, really want to read the second one. Excellent. So. You hear that, Bendis? Get on it. All right. So if you had to rate this book, buy it, skim it, or leave it, what would your rating be? I think you should buy it. I think you should buy it as well. That's a strong buy it from Joe Patrick and our kid expert, Lydia Baum. Thanks for helping us out, Lyd. Welcome. It's time to take a look at some of the comics we're excited about for the week of Wednesday, March 9th. Joe, what are you looking forward to this week? Well, I know that a couple podcasts ago we talked about how I was sort of anti-cross-gen back in the day. Which is shocking. Really L shocking. Listen... They took all my favorite comic book creators and stole them away from me. How did you fight it? I've seen your Wednesday they, piles. They made them go to live on their scary compound in Florida, 
and they couldn't work on any of their other titles. Mark Wade, I, I it, lost like, Mark off. Wade for like two years. I pictured like this, the tracksuits and the Nikes and the shaved heads <laughs> and, the, and the mutilated. Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> so all that said, I am actually looking forward to Sigil Number One uh, by Mike Carey and Leonard Kirk, uh, two creators that I really enjoy. People loved those cross-gen books. I love those cross-gen books. I never really read them. And now that I'm having a second chance, I'm excited to see what it's all about. Yeah, good times. I'm looking forward to Venom Number 1 by Rick Remender and Tony Moore. This is the same team that was on Frankencastle, the Punisher spinoff, which a lot of guys out there hated. Not me. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Me too. It was a ridiculous fun romp. I think this Venom book is going to be a lot of fun. Dan Slott has done an amazing job setting it up in the pages of Amazing, amazing Spider-Man. Uh, 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 no pun intended. And uh, But I love the idea. I love the government slaving the symbiote to Flash Thompson, who lost both his legs in active duty in Afghanistan. Sure. Okay, Afghanistan. And uh, he's back. He's been given a second chance. He's wearing a really cool, militaristic-looking Venom suit, running black ops for the government. Yeah. This book is going to be fun. I agree. A lot of fun. Really looking forward to this one. Guess what, kiddies? Ask a Nerd is back. With new rules, even. From now on, I want you to send your Ask a Nerd questions directly to me to ensure that my heterosexual life mate, Joe Patrick, has no idea <laughs> what's coming to him. You can tweet them to me directly at Matt Bonstein or email us with the subject, Ask a Nerd, and I promise I won't let him look. This Do week's... you not trust me? Do you well, not... I don't trust myself, and I just assume everyone is as dirty as me. So I'm protecting you. That's okay. what I'm doing. I'm protecting your integrity. Thank you. No problem. This week's question comes from Patrick via our Facebook page. Patrick. Patrick says, naming the Infinity Gems should be easy. But what color are each of them? And on the gauntlet, <laughs> in which order do they appear from thumb to pink? What? <laughs> Extra nerd bonus. Who were the original owners that Thanos took them from? I'm saying this one's worth two nerd stripes. Joe Patrick, the Infinity Gauntlet has been thrown down. What you got? All right. Joke's on you. I just reread uh, Thanos Quest. Of course you did. <laughs> like a week ago. So... I will admit, right out of the gate, I cannot name what order they are on That's the glove. Tough. I wouldn't expect you to name the order. Uh, I will settle for the colors and what they do. Okay. And who are the original owners? Uh, if it counts for anything, I do know that the one on the back of the hand is the green one. Okay. The soul gem. The soul gem. So, full disclosure, we did pause the tape and I wrote down my answers just so that there wouldn't be any stumbling and mumbling and uhs and... To keep everything smooth rolling in our quest for a Peabody. Yes, right. Uh, I do want to stress that I did not see this question in advance of recording today. It's true. I did not see the scripts at all. I'm coming at this completely cold. This is all from my powerful nerd brain. So that said... Squeezed fresh from your mind grapes. That's right. You've got the blue gem, which is the mind gem. Stolen from the Grandmaster. You've got the green gem, the soul gem, stolen from the in-betweener. The red gem, the power gem, stolen from the champion. The purple gem, space, stolen from the runner. The orange gem, which is the time gem, stolen from the gardener. And I know how stupid this sounds. And then there is the yellow gem. The reality gem, the big daddy, 
Stolen from the collector. And he's correct, folks. And I have to tell you, with that, any remorse I had from skipping that storyline has been completely removed. <laughs> I feel just fine. Hey, Thanos Quest is awesome. Uh, you know, I never read him. I admit, I read the Thanos Imperative recently, and that was enough for me. Thanos Quest, lead up to the Infinity Gauntlet, the classic Infinity Gauntlet miniseries. It's fantastic. Both are available in trade right now at your local comic shop. With the Joe Patrick seal of approval. Go Thumbs read. up. That said, I'm only giving you one nerd stripe for this one because you couldn't name the order. And I know Patrick. What? And he would not stand for anything but one nerd stripe. You here. said at the beginning you weren't going to make me name the I'm order. I'm a cruel mistress, sir. Oh. Sort of, sort of break, it, break it down like this. And so ends another legendary episode of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Cast. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes where Joe and I sit shaking and sweating like junkies, refreshing our page, <laughs> just itching for your star ratings and reviews. That is only sort of true. <laughs> if you just can't wait for next week's show, become a fan of our Facebook page where you can answer the question of the week, submit Ask a Nerd questions, or beg us for some required reading suggestions. You can always follow us on Twitter at TwoHeadedNerd. Or send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. You can follow my comic speculator blog where I write about comics new and old at worthpoint.com. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Bomstein. You can find updates to my webcomic at goodplusonline.com. Follow us on Twitter at goodplusonline. And follow me at JoePatrick116. And as always, you'll find all things two-headed and nerdy at twoheadednerd.com. Until next time, true believers, this is the two-headed nerd signing off. Au revoir. Bye. Never before in the history of motion pictures has there been a screen presence so commanding, so powerful, so deadly. He's Conan, the librarian. Can you tell me where I can find a book on astronomy? Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? Conan, the librarian. I'm sorry. These books are a little overdue. <laughs> Conan, the librarian. Tonight.